Well, thank you very much for coming out this evening. Uh, we've had to turn people away, and that's an excellent... Uh, it's unfortunate, but it's an excellent sign, particularly since it's not uh, term time. No, I think this is okay. I'm Christopher Coker. I'm from the International Relations Department. It's my great privilege this evening to introduce Professor Ian Morris. Uh, he is an Englishman who's been teaching in the United States for a fair, fair amount of time. Uh, first uh, in Chicago, at least you were at Chicago and now at Stanford, uh, where you are the Willard Professor of Classics. He's an archaeologist, a historian. Uh, he delivered the Tanner Lectures uh, on the Human Values at Princeton. Uh, and we're here today because he has uh, written this book, which I've had, I've just told him, I had the great privilege of reviewing a month ago, War, What Is It uh, Good For?, but uh, many of you will, of course, be here this evening because you've probably read some of his earlier works, particularly Why the West uh, Rules for Now. And this book is similar in some respects. It's a sweeping historical range over 15,000 years of human history. It has a fascinating, if provocative, thesis, which you're here to um, deliver uh, this evening. Uh, and without uh, more ado, I, I will turn it over to you. Just to say, by the way, there will be an iPod of this uh, afterwards uh, if you are interested in pursuing that. He will speak for about 40, 45 minutes, and then we will have questions afterwards. And then we will end at uh, 8 o'clock, and there will be uh, books outside of this, uh, of this book that you can, can buy afterwards. So, without further ado, Professor Morris. Well, thank you. Thank you for that uh, very kind introduction. And uh, thank you to everyone for coming out on such a beautiful evening when you, you, you could be out somewhere much more pleasant than this. Um, so anyway, it's great to see so many people um, coming along. I don't think I've ever had people turned away uh, from a talk before. I had plenty leave after the talk has started, but <laughs> not, not before. So uh, yes, well, th uh, thank you. I'd like to thank Professor Coker again for the introduction and the LSE for inviting me um, this evening. And um, I'm here to talk about a... Oh, actually, uh, let's make sure I can get the slides to work. Ah, yeah, okay, I can, good. Um, so I'm here to talk about a, a new book that um, <clears throat> was published by the fine people at Profile Books just last week. Um, the title of this book, as I'm sure pretty much everybody will recognise, I took the title from the classic 1970 Motown protest song hit, War, What Is It Good For? There it is, War, What Is It Good For? Originally, um, well, it was first a hit with Edwin Starr, who you see on the left, and then uh, re-recorded many times. My favourite version is the Bruce Springsteen one that you see, of 1986, that you see illustrated on the right. So, okay, so now I'm uh, not planning to sing. I'm going to leave that to the professionals, but I imagine most of you probably know the answer to the question that the song itself gives. Um, oops. Uh, okay, there it is. Um, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Well, this evening, I want to disagree with the song. Up to a point, anyway, I want to disagree with the song. And I want to start off um, from an extraordinary fact, one that's becoming, I think, increasingly widely known, but it's still a pretty extraordinary thing, that the, the chance of any, any person on Earth dying violently has fallen dramatically over, um, over the, the period that humans have been here on Earth. And this is something I think has only really become clear over the last generation or so. But one of the major findings that archaeologists and historians have made over the last century or so of research is that Stone Age societies were typically 
tiny. Here's a, one of many examples I could show. Typically tiny groups. People normally lived in groups of a dozen or so, moving around the countryside constantly, normally had very, very little organisation within their communities. And now, Stone Age peoples, they were not, uh, like, I mean, you'll, you'll, I'm sure you'll be familiar with a lot of the 19th century images, you know, a bunch of savages running around killing each other all the time. This here clearly is not true. But, having said that, um, they lived in societies where there were relatively few constraints on what people did. And when people got into disputes and arguments over things, violent solutions to disputes was always an option. A bit like um, schoolboys in Lord of the Flies or something. Violence is always an option. It's available out there. And in Stone Age societies, you typically didn't have the kind of constraints on violence that um, we have in developed modern industrial societies. Um, violence seems to be a regular way to settle uh, disputes in ethnographically attested Stone Age societies. Here, a famously angry group of people from uh, the Brazil Venezuela, borderlands, the Yanomami. Um, now, from what we've been able to reconstruct about Stone Age violence, um, Stone Age groups rarely fight big battles against each other or anything like that. But there seems to be this kind of constant background noise of violence, of homicides, of feuds, of raids on neighbouring villages. And the astonishing statistic is that it seems that on average in Stone Age societies, you would run something like a 10 to 20% chance of dying violently which is an astonishing number when you think about it. I mean, yeah, each row of... Uh, I can't count that high. But each row of seats here is getting up to ten people in, in the middle part here. You know, one of you would die violently, on average. Maybe two of you. Which is a pretty extraordinary statistic. Now, if we fast forward to the 20th century AD, famously the, the bloodiest century in history, um, two world wars are fought, many massacres, genocides committed, nuclear weapons are used, something like uh, somewhere between 100 million and 200 million people around the world seem to have died violently or from the, 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 uh, the indirect effects of violence. 100 to 200 million people, extraordinary number. But during the 20th century, something like 10 billion people lived in the world. So I mean, you can do the math yourselves. One to two percent are dying violently. A 90 percent fall in the rate of violent death since the Stone Age. Now, this, I think, is an absolutely extraordinary statistic. Order of magnitude decline. And this is um, uh, a, a uh, this is a fact about the past that seems to be gaining increasing recognition uh, around the world. Many of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with Stephen Pinker's book, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, uh, where he spends a large part of the book um, documenting that this has happened over the last 10,000 years. So there's a huge paradox here, a real paradox. We live in a world which has the most dangerous weapons ever invented. And we alone, out of all the humans who have ever lived, the last couple of generations, have had the capacity to kill everybody on Earth if we really put our minds to it. So it's an extraordinarily dangerous world, and yet your chance of dying violently is one-tenth of what it would have been in the Stone Age. This is a weird paradox that you know, demands an explanation. And even weirder, you know, in spite of the various horrors going on around the world, the Syrian civil war, all the other terrible things that are happening, the rate of violent death keeps declining. And this um, slide here, just a, a simple graph showing you on the vertical axis these percentages I've been talking about, the percentage chance of violent death for any person living. Across the bottom, just three um, columns, Stone Age over on the left, 20th century, early 21st century on the right. 
and the, um, the, the bar things represent the, uh, the, the risk of violent death in each of these periods, 10 to 20% on the left, down in the 1 to 2% in the 20th century. And according to the United Nations, it now stands at about 0.7% risk of any one person dying violently. So, an obvious question, I think. What can be done to make sure this happy trend continues, even as we get ever worse weapons being invented? And I would say, in some ways, this seems to me to be like the most serious question in the world. How can we prevent a return to Stone Age-type levels of violent death? Now... I would like to suggest that history, and particularly long-term history, holds part of the answer to this question. But I think it's also a very uncomfortable answer, and it's basically what I want to talk about this evening. I want to say that contrary to what the song suggests, war, in fact, has been good for something. Now, this is an uncomfortable argument to make. I mean, war is mass murder. Um, you have many definitions of war, but they all basically come down to mass murder. What sort of person walks around saying that mass murder can have some pretty good side effects? Um, well, I can confidently tell you it's the sort of person who has been very surprised by the results of his own research. Um, I would never have thought I would write a book making this argument. So... Um, Oops, trouble with my papers here. But it does seem that the, the evidence from archaeology and anthropology and history is very clear. In the long run, by which I mean roughly the last 10,000 years or so, war, for, for all of the terrible things about it, war has made the world a safer place. Now, okay, odd, uncomfortable argument. But I think if we are serious about wanting a safer world to live in, if, that, if this argument is right, we, we have to recognise this fact rather than trying to, to wish it away. So I will now try to explain what I mean by these, um, this claim I've been making. And it breaks down into these four separate claims that I'm making, so I'll kind of go through these in turn, then talk a little bit about what I think is the explanation for this trend, and then what I think the consequences of the argument might be. So, okay, the first claim that I want to make, then, is that what has driven the rate of violent death down over the last 10,000 years has been war itself. Now, what I mean by this um, is that by fighting 10,000 years' worth of wars, people have created larger, more organised, internally pacified societies that have reduced the risks that their members will die violently. And I, I realise you could all read, um, but I just feel compelled to, to read it out myself too. Um, war has been the major motor in the creation of larger, safer societies. This is, I think, is the basic argument I'm trying to make. And I say this, um, say that the you know, rulers of internal pacify these societies as the societies get bigger and bigger, drives the rate of violent death down. I say this not because I think rulers are all angels. I mean, rulers are through most of history, rulers have been men who excel in violence. The people who are best at marshalling violence get to be the top guys. And here is some of my favourite violent top guys, the ancient Assyrians, and boy, these guys are really violent. So the rulers are, are not, on the whole pretty nasty people. The reason they pacify their societies is, I think, overwhelmingly a sin one, that if you're the ruler of the Assyrian Empire or, or Stone Age band or whatever it might be, if you're the ruler, like if, if I'm the ruler of the LSE now, what I want every day is for all you LSE folk to go out there and do you know, whatever it is you do at the LSE and generate wealth, make yourselves rich, but above all, pay taxes to me. That's what the ruler wants. The ruler wants a nice, steady flow of income from the subjects. 
You're not going to get that if your subjects are running around, bashing each other in the head, burning each other's farm down. Um, every time they have an argument, if they're killing each other, that is a really bad thing for the ruler. So the rulers come under a kind of selective pressure to pacify their own societies. And the more successful you are in doing that and making your society peaceful, the better you are likely to do as a ruler. Um, if you fail in this job and your society is constantly everybody fighting each other, there's a really good chance you are going to get knocked off by a rebel or by the rule of some other society. So there's like a selective pressure on rulers to move in this direction. Now, obviously, not all rulers respond the same way to this selective pressure. In the book, I refer to to this as the what about Hitler problem. There are a lot of mad dictators in history. Take your pick out of many mad dictators. Here are four of my um, particular unfavorites. Hitler himself, Stalin, Mao, Idi Amin. There's only a lot of nasty rulers. A lot of people you can point out and say, here, this guy goes against your thesis. This is somebody who made his society more dangerous, more violent, not safer. The problem, of course, is as with any big argument, picking out individual extreme cases can never really prove anything. I guess the claim that I'm making is that the overall long-term trend has been toward these pressures that push rulers into making their society safer. There are plenty of exceptions, and yet in spite of these characters, the 10,000-year trend seems to be very clear. We are ten times less likely to die violently today than our Stone Age predecessors were. So that was my, my first claim. The second claim, uh, oops, and then there's my graph again, I'm sorry, I wanted to show the, the ten times um, decline. Where are we going now? Here we go. Second claim. Um, seems to me that war is the worst possible way to create these larger, safer societies, but it's pretty much the only way that people have found. And in the song, um, War, What Is It Good For?, there's a line, Lord knows there's got to be a better way. But apparently there isn't. Uh, I have not found any case that really convinced me that um, we, we, we see examples of large numbers of people coming together, giving up some of their freedoms to form a larger society without somebody forcing this to happen. Um, whether through conquest or through people you know, fearing that they're going to be conquered, violence seems to be behind this trend. This, I think, is an important part of my argument, even though it's a very depressing part of the argument. And this, of course, this is basically the argument that Thomas Hobbes made in Leviathan back in the 1650s. And uh, I mean, it's slightly depressing also to think that we haven't advanced at all since the 1650s. But of course, Hobbes got to his argument through the exercise of reason and speculation. He famously disliked evidence. You know, he wrote a lot about physics. He was living through the golden age, right in Britain, of all the, the great physicists. He seems to have had almost no interest in their experiments at all. He just reasoned about stuff. We are now in a position, I think, to produce the evidence to prove that Hobbes had stuff more or less right. Okay, third claim I want to make. Um, War, I would say, over the long run, war hasn't just made people safer, war has also made the world richer. And again, it seems a very paradoxical claim. War is destruction. You, you kill people and you blow things up in war. That's what you do. War, there's a, you know, the, uh, the Roman writer Tacitus had one of his characters famously say, the Romans make a wasteland and they call it a peace. So here's the, the Roman version of pacification of peoples, burning the village to save it here in Dacia in the second century AD. Um, war is a, a process of destruction and violence. Yet, if you look at war in the long term, what you find over and over again is 100 years, 200 years, say, after an area has been brought into a larger kingdom or empire, 
Everybody involved seems to be safer and more prosperous than they were before. They're the conquerors and the conquered alike. We see more complex divisions of labor, everyone becoming richer. Roman examples here, the, 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 a famous model Mussolini had built at the top of the city of Rome. Aqueducts, obviously, the Roman ships that carried all the grain supply around. We see this over and over again in ancient empires like the Han in China, the Mauryan in India, the Roman in the Mediterranean basin, and in more recent ones too. Time passes, everybody ends up better off. Now, okay, if these three claims are roughly correct, then I think we we have to conclude that war has been good for something. Um, The only way to create the larger, uh, more organized societies that drive down the rate of violent death, it seems to me, uh, and enriches communities too, seems to me, has been through the process of war creating stronger governments. Uh, It's a paradoxical argument, a very uncomfortable one, but I do think it's true. In the long run, then, I'm saying war has been good for something, in fact, so good at it, that the fourth claim I I would make is that war is now putting itself out of business. Um, And this, again, in a way, is a sort of uncomfortable claim to make. I mean, I think if you were an alien who came from outer space and you came to Earth and you had total recall of all human history, I think the obvious conclusion to draw from this storyline would be that there'll be one more great war, which will leave us with a world government. Uh, The rate of violent death will fall down to zero. Everything will be fantastic. But what you would also observe, as the omniscient alien, of course, is that we Earthlings can't have another great war. We've got weapons so powerful and organizations to use them so effective that another great power war now would potentially destroy humanity altogether. Uh, This is why I say war, in a sense, seems to be putting itself out of business. Um, Back in the 1980s, the peak of the nuclear arsenals in 1986, the year Bruce Springsteen re-recorded war, there were 70,000 nuclear warheads in the world. And uh, the U.S. Department of Defense um, hired the RAND Corporation to run a war game for them to figure out what's likely to happen if there's an all-out exchange with the Soviets. And the consultants come back and say, well, we anticipate in the first couple of weeks we're talking roughly roughly a billion dead and the defense department people go pale and then the the consultants say and in the weeks that follow well we can't actually tell you how many billions more are going to die from the the knock-on effects of the war so they they fire their consultants they hire another set of consultants bring them in exactly the same result an all-out nuclear war in the 1980s potentially could have destroyed civilization perhaps destroyed humanity altogether So, in a sense, we can conclude that war is sort of putting itself out of business. So, okay, in this book, I mean, much of what I do in the book is telling this story, uh, the decline in the rates of violent death, trying to document it, trying to figure out you know, the, the proximate causes of why this is happening. And um, so, I mean, I could stand here, of course, and read the book to you, but that would that'd take a while, so I'm not going to try to do that. But I think instead I'm going to focus on what seems to me like the, the obvious question to follow on from this. You know, why is this happening? Why do things work this way? If I'm right about how they work, why do they work? work this way? Why is it that um, war has had these sorts of effects? And I think to answer that, you've actually got to go beyond the sort of long-term history that I like to do, the the 10,000, 15,000-year span, and look more broadly at the biological evolution of violence. 
And this is something where our understanding has changed out of all recognition in the last 50 years. And it's hard to sort of imagine now, but uh, up till 1960, there was no research station anywhere in the world studying our genetic closest kin, the other great apes, in, in their natural habitats. In 1960, Jane Goodall um, sets up her Gombe research station in Tanzania. That's the first time ever that someone has gone into the wild to study our closest genetic neighbours in the natural world. And Jane Goodall, um, J- Jane Goodall became very famous. She got sponsored by National Geographic magazine, and they did a series of TV specials about her. And she introduced viewers all over the world to the lovable chimpanzees of Gombe Park, who you see here having a, a big love fest, grooming each other. And there's um, who was it? Mike Graybeard was one of those very wise chimpanzee. And there's another guy called uh, another chimp called Flo, very lovable, wise elder mother. These chimps get shown on TV all the time. It's all it's all fantastic. Lots of new funding comes in. Everybody's having a great time. Then, in 1973, they make an awkward discovery. They discover that the two communities of chimpanzees they're working with have gone to war with each other. And one of the chimpanzee communities wages a successful genocidal war against the other. Over the course of four years, um, the chimps of the Kasakela community um, beat to death all of the male chimpanzees in the neighbouring Kahama community. They beat and rape all of the females. They kill some of the females, but not very many. The rest they abduct into their own community, and then they take over the forest range of the community they just annihilated. Now, you can imagine that for Jane Goodall, this was a little bit of bad news, a bit of a shock. Um, but people reacted to this very, very strongly. And in the 70s, you get um, a series of particularly journalists coming forward, writing books, saying, well, Chimpanzees share 98% of their DNA with us. This proves that humanity is hardwired for violence. We have inherited violence from the last uh, common ancestor we shared, the chimpanzees. We can't do anything about it. This is just the way we are. And huge arguments developed about this. But then in the middle of the 1980s, a new discovery came up. as Research is proliferating in, in Central Africa at this point. A new discovery came up. Across the other side of the Congo River, which is well over a mile wide at many points, much too wide for apes to swim across. On the other side of the Congo River, a different kind of chimpanzee has evolved. Um, what uh, people now normally call the bonobo chimpanzee or pygmy chimpanzee, which is genetically very similar to the regular chimpanzees, but separated by this river over the course of 1.3 million years, um, the, the two sorts of chimps have diverged from their common ancestor. The bonobos turn out to be very different from the regular chimpanzees. Bonobos, it turns out, bonobos don't go around killing each other all the time. When groups of bonobos encounter each other, very different things happen altogether. And this was first documented in 1986, when a Japanese primatologist sees two bonobo groups kind of run into each other in a clearing in the forest. There's no fighting. Instead, they sort of sit down and they watch each other for a while. Then a female bonobo gets up from one group and walks across to the other and sits down next to another female bonobo. And they start grooming each other. This goes on for a couple of minutes. Then they lie down next to each other and start pressing against each other. Then um, one climbs on top of the other one and they start rubbing their genitals together furiously. And they start panting and they're staring into each other's eyes. They're gasping for air. And then one of them starts shrieking and both of them fall backwards, panting in the grass, looking up at the sky. And I, um, 
primatologists are hesitant to say that they are witnessing chimpanzee lesbian sex here but this is very much what it appears to be and bonobos have been studied intensely in the last 25 years they very rarely use violence to settle their disputes instead what they do is versions of what you see here and uh, bonobos immediately got christened um, by the same journalists often christened them the, the hippie chimpanzees and they said that the bonobos prove that we have in fact evolved to make love, not war. Um, so it couldn't, then the whole debate got very tangled. You, you can't have both things going on at once. But the thing is here, the bonobos also share 98% of their DNA with us. The obvious conclusion here is we are not hardwired to be violent. Violence, and nearly all biologists now agree on this, violence is an evolved adaptation. And then what they mean by that is pretty much every species of animal in the world uses violence. They've evolved to have violence as a, a method available to them to settle their problems, settle their arguments. Each species uses violence in a different way, though. And obviously, you know, lions and, and bunny rabbits use violence. Actually, bunny rabbits are quite violent, a bad example. Lions and lambs use violence very, very differently from each other. And within each species, of course, each animal is different, too. Some lions are more violent than others. Some lambs are more violent than others. I uh, can't imagine what that would look like, but I'm sure it's true. But um, each species, though, evolves toward a kind of equilibrium use of violence, the, the sort of average best level of violence. And so if you are a lion that's more violent than the equilibrium, well, you are less likely to pass your genes on to the next generation than someone who's right at the equilibrium point. Because you fight more, the risk of you getting injured or killed is higher, um, your chance of passing on your genes is slightly lower. If you are a pacifist lion, you have the same problem. You are more likely, you're going to be chased off when there's food. It's going to be harder to get access to mates. You're less likely to pass your genes on to the next generation. So lions evolve toward a kind of equilibrium use of violence for that species. And humans, because well, we're animals too, we have done exactly the same thing. We evolved toward the 10 to 20% range um, that we see in Stone Age societies. We, uh, you know, when we evolved around the, the edges of the great rainforest of the last 100,000 years into our modern form, th this, is, this is what we did. We evolved this sort of pattern of the use of violence. So we, we are exactly like other animals, except for the fact, of course, that we are completely unlike other animals. Um, our biological evolution, in addition to producing an equilibrium level of violence, it also produces the modern human brain. And I apologize, this is a slightly disgusting picture, but um, uh, you get the point. Um, the modern human brain is the miracle of nature. So far as we know, there is nothing in the entire universe as complex and sophisticated as the, the, the hot, sweaty lump you brought with you this evening in your head when you came here. There's no processing, calculating machine like it in the universe. This brain, this makes us different from the, the other animals. We evolve biologically just like all the other animals, but we can also evolve culturally. So where other animals change their, their use of violence as their environment changes, they evolve biologically, they turn basically into a different animal. We do that too, but we also evolve culturally and institutionally much faster and if the, rate, the, the, if the payoffs from using violence change, we can change um, the way we behave in order to maximize the payoffs, using violence in different sorts of ways. And through most of history, uh, human violence has been very chimp-like. Our 10 to 20% rate is very similar to their 10 to 20% rate of violent death. Um, the way Stone Age humans kill each other is mostly through raids and uh, a group of half a dozen ambushing one male, um, very similar to what the chimpanzees do. Very, very similar use of violence seems to be the, the way that we evolved. 
But then, starting about 10,000, 15,000 years ago, this began to change uh, really quite quickly. At the end of the last ice age, the world, obviously it's the end of the last ice age, the world warms up at the end of the last ice age. Um, Global warming sets in. And then, as now, global warming, of course, affects the whole globe. Then, as now, it affects different parts of the globe in different ways. And there's one particular band of latitudes across the world, what in my books I tend to call the lucky latitudes. It runs from China to the Mediterranean in the Old World, Peru up to Mexico in the New World. In this band of latitudes, plants and animals had evolved that could be domesticated by humans. Humans could become farmers. There were plants, you know, wheat, rice, barley, animals, cows, pigs, sheep, that could be domesticated to yield much more uh, food resources and animal muscle resources for humans. Humans respond to this change in the environment culturally by inventing farming. The result of this is a population explosion all across the lucky latitudes, and the world begins to fill up, gets much more crowded. And this has a huge consequence for human violence. Back in the Stone Age, when everybody is a hunter-gatherer, if two tribes go to war, one starts losing, they always have the option of going away and hunting and gathering somewhere else. The landscape has very low population. Once farming starts, though, it starts filling up over the space of thousands of years, but relatively quickly for this story. The landscape starts filling up. It becomes much more difficult for losers to run away. If you run away, you're now just going to have to fight again because somebody's already going to be in the next valley. And what happens is that the winners of wars now start incorporating the losers into larger societies. And it doesn't always happen, of course, but it happens often enough to create this long-term trend. And the first example we know of from a documentary source is in ancient Egypt, around 3100 BC. Defeated societies get swallowed up into bigger societies. Governments pacify these bigger societies. Governments change the payoffs from using violence. If you are living in the Nile Valley, you start finding that now if you go around burning the neighboring village, the government is going to come down and crack down on you. It's a much less attractive thing to do. Sets off this process of the... Uh, oops, I guess I forgot to clean the slide up. Um, sets back the long-term process of these decline in rates of violent death that I mentioned earlier. This is just a slide that we've got earlier. My Excel program, for some reason makes all the background go black unless I tell it to do white, and I obviously uh, forgot this one. So obviously there's a lot of twists and turns in this story as we move from um, the Stone Age through to modern times. I'm not going to bore you by taking you step through step through the whole story, but there is one point in the story I do want to draw attention to, because I think it's quite important, that by the 18th century, um, the larger societies that people create through their violence, through their wars, the larger societies have got so big that they... Begin, it begins to change the way larger societies get run. And by the 18th century, well, this is a, a, a development that's actually first spotted by Adam Smith, or first made explicit by Adam Smith. Um, what Smith points out in the 18th century is that the true source of the wealth of nations is not like being a Roman emperor or something, a Han Chinese emperor, going out and conquering people and plundering them, then taxing them heavily. You you can get rich by doing that, but that's not the true source of wealth, says Smith. Smith says, the empires we have created have grown so big, we've drawn so much of the world into trading networks focused on Western Europe, that the best way to make societies rich now is just for governments to sort of back off a little bit and leave people free to truck and barter, to generate wealth in the ways that they want to, then the government taxes that pretty lightly, said Smith, that will generate much more wealth than the old-fashioned 
old-fashioned way of being a leviathan, of being a ruler. We now live in a world where the, the scale of trade and commerce is so great that this is possible. But one thing, and that, of course, you're very well known in Smith's argument. One thing in Smith's argument, though, that often gets overlooked by people, is that while Smith was saying uh, that for markets to work efficiently, government needs to get out of markets, Smith was also very, very clear that for markets to work at all, government must get into markets. That markets cannot work unless somebody's enforcing the rules, um, making a level playing field for the market to operate. Smith saw that by the 18th century, um, the world had got to a point where we'd gone beyond the old kind of leviathans to having the potential for super leviathans that oversee a global order rather than just a national one, policing flows of international trade, making everybody richer. And by, certainly by 1815, the world is beginning to have just such a globocop in the form of Britain, which is one out of all these great conflicts, and um, increasingly is becoming a country that is using its military might and its wealth to police a global international order of trade and living off the profits of this. Now, this, of course, is hugely successful for the British. Uh, British wealth just goes up and up and up in the 19th century. But it has a very paradoxical result. I think it is quite important to understand this story. Um, The British, uh, basically, they're they're, they're profiting, becoming so powerful by running an empire of free trade. Uh, Ancient empires were a bit like this, but not really. This goes way beyond the ancient ones. An empire of free trade and open markets. In order to make that work, of course, what you need, you need prosperous foreigners who can buy the goods and services that Britain provides. If foreigners are all desperately poor, they can't buy this stuff. The system simply doesn't work. So Britain finds itself in the business of enriching other countries too, which is not their primary goal, obviously, but it's something the economists are very well aware of, that uh, open international market will enrich other countries. Economically, this is a, a very sensible idea. The pie just gets bigger and bigger. Strategically, though, it rapidly becomes a problem. Because by, well, certainly by the 1870s, some other countries, particularly um, the United States and Germany, are becoming so rich, uh, and here's um, oh, an- another one, I guess I failed to clean up, uh, uh, a very famous graph that was drawn of um, the, the growth of different national GDPs. And what we're looking at in the 19th century, you don't have any of the scale, so this means absolutely nothing to you. I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, what we see, the, the blue line uh, is British uh, national GDP. And I think we start over here in 1820 and end over here in 1913, which you see going up and up and up and up. But the red, uh, which is the yellow line represents Germany, that is marked on the graph. Uh, German GDP catches up with British. American GDP catches up even earlier, back in the 1860s. Britain, in a sense, helps to create its own rivals uh, by policing this, um, this international system of free trade that makes Britain so rich. UK is richer than ever, and it's got so rich because it does a good job of being the globocop, um, deterring other countries from taking violent steps that might disrupt this British-dominated order. But by doing such a good job, it has the paradoxical effect of creating the rivals that will challenge it. By the 1870s, people are beginning to see that Britain is no longer in such a position to act as the Globocop anymore. By the 1910s, it's gotten to the point that increasing numbers of governments are starting to say, we are no longer certain that the British Globocop is actually in a position to intervene, uh, prevent anybody from using force to settle their disputes. 
Maybe the conclusion we should draw from this is that using violence is no longer the worst-case scenario for us. And a number of governments here bounce around with this problem in 1890s through to the 1910s because ultimately it's Central European governments and I, I would say predominantly, primarily the German government are the ones who draw this conclusion. We have these terrible strategic problems. We can no longer rely on a stable international order Going to war is no longer the absolute worst option available to us. And the result, of course, is the beginning of the vast conflicts of the 20th century that leave 100 to 200 million people dead. Western European power is swept away. The world simplifies into two major camps and ultimately into one major camp, an American-dominated global system. Now, by 1945, it's already clear that war is putting itself out of business. Um, and I think what we see since 1945 is an extraordinary rapid adaptation to the changing payoffs of war. Once nuclear weapons are in the world, um, the payoffs from war potentially drop to zero. We could kill everybody if we have a major war. It's an insane thing to do. People respond very, very rapidly to this new situation. And uh, the way I, f I find really useful to think about you know, just how rapidly we responded to the change in the payoffs from violence is to imagine that I were standing here and you were sitting here at the LSE, not in 2014, but 50 years ago, back in 1964. And it's three years since the Berlin Wall went up, two years since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, it's shortly before China tests its first atomic weapon. It's a year before the first U.S. Marine splashes ashore in South Vietnam. And I had come in here and said to you, told you this whole story about adapting to pay us some violence, and I had said, I bet you dollars to donuts that 25 years from now, in 1989, those communists in Russia, they will have woken up one day and said, you know, this whole communism thing isn't working for me. Um, I don't think violence can solve my problem. Invading West Germany is not going to solve my problems. So I'm just going to stop it. I'm just going to stop being com a communist. We're going to end the Soviet Union. We're going to tear down the Berlin Wall. A couple of hundred people are going to get shot, mostly in Romania. We're not going to have a couple of hundred million get killed in a nuclear war. Um, the whole thing is just going to end because people will wise up and realise that you cannot use violence to solve this particular set of problems. Now, if I'd said that in 1964, you would have all thought I'd lost my mind. And yet, obviously, this is pretty much exactly what happened. For every 20 nuclear warheads in the world in 1986, when Bruce Springsteen sang, here's another of my graphs without the axes on, uh, the peak of the graph here is uh, 1986. It's the number of nuclear warheads in the world, 70,000 nuclear warheads in the world in 1986. Now, the last year on this graph is 2012 over at the right. There's now one warhead in the world for every 20 we had in 1986. An extraordinary transformation has happened. The Cold War came to an end. We moved into a world dominated by the US much more than the British had ever dominated the 19th century. A new invisible fist backing up the invisible hand of the market with new levels of power to deter other states from using aggression. There are more formally independent governments today than there have ever been before. But um, it's also true that more people are integrated today into a single system than ever before. It's also true that there's less risk of violent death today than ever before. And here, uh, yes, again, with, with no axes, we have my uh, chart of the, the rates of violent death in different periods, from 10 to 20% over at the left in Stone Age, down to 0.7% at the beginning of uh, the 21st century. And actually, you'll see on this chart, I mean, the book, of course, I go into a lot more detail. The story, of course, is rather 
rather more complicated than presenting it now. There are periods when the rates of violent death spike back up. But again, of course, you'll, you need to read the book um, to, to get that. Okay, so to conclude, um, the argument I've been making then is that war has been good for something. War, in addition to all the things it is obviously bad for, war has made the world safer by creating bigger societies that pacify themselves internally and increasingly choose not to fight each other to solve their problems. But having said that, what is war going to be good for? Which I think is a a good place to end. Uh, So I think the, the trends in the long term history do warrant some tentative predicting of where things might go in the 21st century. And this is not, not entirely cheerful predicting, but I think it's, it's worth thinking about it. I mean, I suggested a moment that you know, what happened in the, the late 19th century was that the British Globo Cup began to break down in the 18, after about 1870 because it had been basically so good at being a Globo Cup that it had built up its own rivals. Um, in the 1870s, nobody's directly challenging the British. They all know that's an insane game to get into. But by the 1910s, um, some of Britain's rivals are thinking that maybe using force is a sensible way to go here. And we end up, of course, with 1914, the outbreak of World War I. Now, since about the year 2000, an increasing number of analysts have been suggesting that the U.S. Globocop is going through a similar sort of process, that it's been so successful in building up these international flows of trade and profiting from them that it's built up other powers which have become its rivals. And China, of course, um, is uh, the the one that people particularly focus on, as a, a great power emerging now, becoming extraordinarily rich. Um, Now, currently, of course, in the 2010s, U.S. military dominance is massive and overwhelming and seems to be growing constantly here, which is an extraordinary thing that happened just last year. For the first time ever, a fully robotic plane lands itself and takes off again from the deck of an aircraft carrier. Um, The most complicated task that a human Navy fighter pilot ever has to perform, a machine did it with no human input whatsoever. And I feel a bit uh, anxious talking about robotic warfare with uh, Professor Cocos right next to me here. But um, it does seem that in many respects US military dominance is just increasing at this point. But where will we be 40 years on? 40 years on in the British case brought us to the 1910s and the outbreak of a world war. If current trends continue, it seems to me perfectly possible that 40 years out from here, say in the 2040s, 2050s, the American Globocop may no longer be in a position to continue to perform the job of being Globocop. This makes me suspect that the next 40 years may in fact be the most dangerous 40 years in human history. That we've got a period as unstable as the 1870s to 1910s run up to World War I, combined with weapons even more devastating than those we had in the Cold War. And that is a rather sobering thought. And it points, I think, toward a conclusion, a a lesson of long-term history, if you like, that I found that not everybody likes this conclusion, but the conclusion just seems to me very obvious. If what I'm saying is right, then if you want a peaceful, prosperous world, you should do everything you can to preserve American global hegemony. That seems to me the only possible conclusion from this story. But let me end by depressing you um, even more profoundly, uh, if, if that's possible. Even if everybody rushes out there right now and says, I support the NSA, let's go, 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 this is great. Even if we all do that, is the United States going to remain the world's globo cup forever and ever? So that there's, I mean, every major shift in the balance of wealth and power in the world in the past has been accompanied by massive violence. Um, if the only way to avoid that is to prevent such shifts taking place, is the US going to stay in that job forever and ever? 
Well, it seems to me pretty obvious the answer is no. I mean, nothing ever has gone on forever and ever before. Not likely it will now. Um, and you know, one way to think about this, do you really think that if World War I had broken out, Britain would still be the Globo Cup now? And um, I'm sure some people would say yes. I've yet to find anybody who will stand up and say, yes, I really believe that. Uh, it seems to me very, very unlikely that the U.S. Globo Cup will go on forever and ever. So does that mean that we are doomed to fight another war, a war that will end war and end perhaps everything else as well? Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that topic too, but I've uh, talked more than enough, so if you want to find out about those, you're going to have to read my book. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for that. Um, we have uh, about 45 minutes for questions, and I would uh, be grateful if you'd identify yourself, say where you come from, at the same time that you ask the question. So there's one over there. There is a microphone going around the room, so if you could wait until it comes. Hi, my name's Leon. Uh, I think linking your statistics to Stone Age culture regarding that uh, we live in a safe society is possibly quite insane. <laughs> Uh, really, that is that's quite unbelievable. I think that uh, the, the only description of war can only be uh, the partial genocide of the working class and not just murder. I think it's much more sophisticated than you're suggesting it is. And the, the, yes, people do become, uh, think war is very good and successful, and that is the elite because they get, gain wealth from selling arms and making arms and power from destroying uh, a whole part of society that was about to uh, become much more successful. And I think that the one thing that has stopped war and reduced war and has given us a better society is democracy. And no democracy has ever waged war against another democracy. Thank you. Okay, yeah, well, um, uh, okay, yeah, I'm loud. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, great questions. Uh, and I think, I mean, you raise a lot, a lot of points here, but I'll try to respond um, quickly to what I thought were the, the three main points, uh, what you're saying. The first is about the, the Stone Age rates of, of violent death. I mean, this is something, yeah, a lot of anthropologists have resisted this idea that Stone Age societies were so violent. And what happened was that uh, conventionally anthropologists will go out and do their field work, and they'll stay a few months, maybe a year or so, uh, with the group that they're studying, um, and follow them around, you know, observe what they're going, what, what's going on. And very often, they, they saw very little violence happening. And then, in fact, there's a very famous book written by um, Elizabeth Marshall Thomas called The Harmless People, about the Kung of the, the Kalahari Desert. Uh, she's more famous nowadays for her book The Hidden Life of Dogs, which is also a really good book. Um, but she, she f spent uh, quite a long period when she was young among the Kung uh, hunter-gatherers in the, the Kalahari Desert and, and wrote this book about how incredibly peaceful they were. What she didn't realise was that their rates of violent death among the, the very group she was with were higher than the rates of violent death in inner city Detroit during the height of the crack cocaine epidemic. Now, the reason she didn't see this was not because she was an idiot. I mean, she's a very good anthropologist. Um, but she spent about a year of time altogether doing ethnographic work among the Kung. The group she was studying um, had about a dozen people in it. So if they have a 10% rate of violent death, that means there will be a violent death roughly one per generation. Anthropologists rarely see this going on. They, it's just not possible uh, to, to observe it directly. So it wasn't really until the 1960s or 70s when you get 
get much, you know, a much bigger professional infrastructure, basically, and people going back on repeated revisits of the same societies, that they're able to start producing the genealogies that allow you to see just how shockingly high the rates of violent death are um, in so many of the surviving Stone Age societies. And, of course, there are all kinds of other questions then arise. So how much do contemporary Stone Age societies tell us about prehistoric ones? And it's difficult to know for sure. Um, the, the archaeological evidence does seem to be consistent with these very high rates of violent death. But I mean, they are very different sorts of evidence. So there certainly is room for argument about this. But the, the, the violence of the Stone Age societies, it does seem very difficult to make the case that... Um, early humans lived in this peaceful sort of Margaret Mead's type vision of the way the world works. Um, your, your point about uh, democracy, I think that is absolutely right, uh, that democracies have played a huge part in this pacification um, process. And when, in the early stages of writing my book, uh, it dawned on me one day that, you know, this is a kind of, as I said, a paradoxical, uncomfortable argument, but it sort of hit me one day, my God, this is a really uncomfortable argument. It seems to be implying that you know, it doesn't matter who wins wars, just as long as somebody wins the wars and creates a government. And it doesn't matter what these governments are like, they all do the same thing. But then it dawned on me, of course, that that's actually not it at all. Um, the, the long-term trend, the overall effect, has been toward lowering rates of violent death across a 10,000-year period. But some governments, of course, are much better at it than other governments. And democracies have been spectacularly good at this. That, um, the rates of violent death just kind of fall off a cliff, uh, really, around the end of the 18th century. It really goes down very sharply at that point. Um, yeah, and democracies, you know, again, you know, although democracies are very messy kind Kinds of organizations, they very rarely slaughter their own people. Dictatorships can sometimes get things done efficiently, but they do tend to kill an awful lot of their own people. So, yeah, no, I agree with you completely that um, democracy has been one of the most important factors in the very recent part of the story, in the pacification process. Um, throughout, of course, almost the whole of human history, though, since the invention of farming and writing, uh, writing about 5,000 years ago, there have been very, very few democracies. Um, in spite of there being so few democracies, we still see this very, very big decline in the rate of violent death. That even autocracies like Han Dynasty China or Mao in India were able to lower the rates of violent death over long periods. So while I would agree with you that democracy is an important part of this story, it's not by any means the main driver in the story. Yes. Thank you very much for a brilliant talk. Um, I've just been, well, on nuclear weapons. I want to ask a question. We now consider now one superpower, no longer Russia. But I understand, if I'm right, that Russia has the most nuclear weapons in terms of quantity, mm-hmm. more than America. America has a second, and actually the French have the third, and um, uh, they have the third number of nuclear weapons. Am I right in this? And any particular? Yes, yes, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, of course, I mean, um, uh, as you saw from the graph with no numbers on any of the axes, um, the, the number of nuclear weapons starts to decline shortly before the end of the Cold War. I think 1986 is the peak, and it begins going down at that point and then falls steadily. But the numbers, of course, remain enormous for a very long time, and well into the 1990s, there were enough um, to kill certainly hundreds and hundreds of millions of people at one go, and Russia, as you say, had the majority of them. Because the, the big change initially, why everybody... Felt so much safer in the 90s than we had done in the 80s and 70s was that the, the, 
the reason, the potential reason to use these nuclear weapons kind of goes away once the, the Berlin Wall comes down, the Soviet Union uh, votes itself out of existence. Uh, but even, I mean, uh, the, the terrifying thing is uh, with the, the nuclear stuff uh, um, is that you know, back in the 70s and 80s when the numbers go so high, uh, and people were talking, you know, of course, regularly talk about overkill in those days. Um, the great majority of the weapons are designed to be targeted against the enemy nuclear arsenal. And uh, even in a complete sort of counter-value war where you're attacking civilian population targets, relatively small number of the nuclear weapons will be targeted on enemy cities. And you still get a billion dead. So now that we've had a 95% fall in the number of weapons, we've not had a 95% fall in the likely number of deaths in a nuclear war. If there were an all-out nuclear war now, we would still almost certainly be looking at two, three, maybe 400 million dead in the first um, few weeks. So, yeah, we, we haven't got all the way to safety by any means. Hi. Um, if war is the continuation of uh, politi- political activity by other means, then isn't it the political activity that's made the world a safer place rather than war? Isn't war just the extreme moments of that political activity, but it's actually... Mm-hmm. groups of people working out their competing demands through activity that, that has created the societies that have made the world a safer place. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very good question. I mean, this is why uh, I said yeah, one of my four points is that, uh, so far as I can make out, um, it's really hard to find a convincing case of uh, a larger society being formed and people giving up their freedoms without force being behind this. Somewhere. Either a direct conquest from one place to another, or, of course, what, what also quite often happens is, say, you know, groups of small states will start um, breaking down the boundaries between them because they are afraid of bigger predatory nations and start setting aside their differences. And often in ancient times, groups of city-states would form into a larger territorial state because they're afraid of the Romans or the Han Chinese coming in and getting them or whatever. Um, and this, uh, this is something I spent quite a long time looking into. This There's a number of cases where... On the surface, it looks like we might have an example of political processes other than the use of violence leading to this end result. But I, I felt in the end that none of them was entirely convincing. And so one that's very popular in the USA is to say, well, um, the USA comes together without war being the big driver. But uh, I found that you, you spend even a day or two looking into the history of the early republic, you find that it's complete nonsense. That I mean, In the early republic, there are these very strongly divided views on whether we should have centralised government or whether the states should be pretty much independent from each other. And there are plenty of people who thought there should really be no government at all. Uh, that Americans are cut from a different cloth from the rest of humanity. They're more virtuous than other humans. And they don't need governments or armies or taxes or any of these nasty things. Because there's a certain strain of this uh, that continues today in American politics too. Um, but the real difference was that uh, the US was in an entirely different strategic position from European states who were surrounded by big, scary, predatory neighbours. And the early United States faced no really predatory neighbours. And any time American politicians thought that they did face a serious threat from outside, they ran to centralise their government. And this comes up again and again and again in the 19th century uh, in the US case that violence and the fear of violence seems to be what drives centralisation and pulling the, the United States together into a single society. 
And uh, there's other cases you can look at which you know, have the appearance of perhaps being an exception. I think the, the European Union is actually perhaps the, the most interesting one, um, where you know, for the first time in history, hundreds of millions of people have come together, given up many of their freedoms and powers to a central authority without anybody pointing a gun at them. But again, I mean, this is a case where it seems to me war and violence are driving this process along. The European Union could not have happened were it not that it was beginning to form in the immediate aftermath of World War II. People saying we cannot go there again. Wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been under the protection of the American nuclear umbrella, the Americans strongly encouraging these developments. And after the end of the Cold War, Europe faces no real existential threats at all. So I, I would say the European Union becomes the European Union because it's doing so under the shadow of the American Globocop. And in the US, people like to take this as clear evidence that Europeans are, are weaklings and cowards and, and you know, bringing down the American world order and so on. But I think the other side of this process is that the US couldn't do what it's doing as a Globocop if European governments now behaved the way they did 100 years ago, were building great big armies. The US would go bankrupt trying to compete with that. So I, mean, I would say that the U.S. acting as a globocop and Europe moving has become the most peaceful uh, part of the world in the whole of history. These two things are just completely linked to each other. And so, again, I, mean, I, I would say I've yet to find a really convincing case of people getting to this end point without war being the big driver that sort of pushes the process along. Hello. Yeah, I'd like to take you up on your contention that the larger the society, the less violent. Because if you look at, for example, the Italian city-states, there were fairly, there, was, there were obviously murders and poisoning and so on, but if you compare it with the united Italy, and not just the fascist period, you'll see that the, that, uh, the, the level of violence increased. Yeah, well, I mean, I, as I was saying in the talk... It's not, it's not difficult to find um, cases that run contrary to the central trend. The whole There's medieval plenty. world, for example. Is it pardon? The whole medieval world, for example. Yes, units. yes. Well, I, actually, if I, uh, going back a moment to um, one, of the, one of the graphs I showed with no axes on them. I mentioned at the end, but I, I showed my, the graph I'd used a, a number of times during it, showing the 10 to 20% rates of violent death in the Stone Age, and over the right-hand side, these very low rates. The, the last one I showed, the, the, the rate had spiked up a little bit in the middle. And this is actually exactly the period that you're talking about, which the, the, I'm sort of using the term loosely, but I think you'll call it a medieval period, from roughly AD 200 through 1400. Um, all across Eurasia, at least, in the, the sort of richest, the, the band of society in the Mediterranean to China, we see a great increase in rates of violent death. I mean, this is basically the period sandwiched between Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan. So you know, it shouldn't be too surprising to hear rates of violent death go up. And because what happens in this period is you get the collapse of the great big empires um, formed in the ancient world, which uh, driven rates of violent death down. For a number of reasons, these, these empires come to pieces, they break down into lots of smaller states, and the rates of violent death go back up again. Um, and not until about 1400 or so does the process begin to be reversed. And the, the motor behind this, I, I would say, is um, the evolution of new kinds of societies in Central Asia on the steppes, where during the first millennium BC, 
much bigger horses are evolving on the steps. Horses big enough um, that you can ride around on them all day. And um, I mean, it's an amazing thing, but you know, as late as about 1000 BC, there are no horses big enough that you could ride around on them all day, anywhere in the world. The horses just are not big and strong enough to do that. That's why second millennium people fought chariot warfare rather than cavalry warfare. Cavalry warfare only begins to become a dominant thing at the very end of the first millennium BC. And the steppe societies, even though yeah, they're very small, very chaotic, very violent, they have an enormous advantage in cavalry warfare because this is by far and away the best place in the world to breed big cavalry horses. And for more than a thousand years, none of these great empires have got an answer to this military problem. And I've got another graph, which I, I didn't show you with or without axes, charting the long-term trend in the size, just the geographical size of states in the old world from AD 1 to 1400. It's steadily down across this period, the, the long-term trend. They come to pieces, the violence increases, and it only gets turned around after about 1400, when um, new weapons start to appear, particularly guns, which allow um, the the uh, more complex societies from uh, Europe to China to really close down this threat from, um, from the steppe cavalry. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, as I said in the talk, the story, of course, is full of twists and turns. I mean, and, and in addition to the individual cases that run against it, uh, I'm sorry I misunderstood your question initially, there are periods, different points in different parts of the world, where it actually gets reversed. Yeah, I'd like to go back to the issue of... Um how we lived uh, in the Stone Age period. I mean, this was the longest uh, period, in, if you like, in human existence, 100,000 years or more, with anatomically very similar, identical to the way we are now. Um, and under those conditions, you know, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that we lived similarly to the way nomadic hunter-gatherers live today. Um, and leaving aside the issue of violence, we know that nomadic hunter-gatherers um, don't have property, they share everything, they're extremely um, egalitarian, they have a whole range of rituals and taboos and systems and collective decision making um, in order to maintain peace um, within their communities and the debate about how violent they may or may not have been is, is certainly still on, it hasn't been resolved and I must admit it slightly upsets me that um, clearly well-read intelligent people like yourself or Stephen Pinker think that debate has somehow been resolved, that these people were just as violent or more violent than any other um, period in society. I mean, one of the things that sort of convinces me that might not be the case is that when they study nomadic hunter-gatherers today, you find that there's a real taboo against beating children. This is a real shock to every other society that, that lives around them because it's, it's, it's up until, apart from modern societies, beating children is kind of, you know, just, just the routine. Um, and it, as I said, there's many tendencies to reduce violence. And you mentioned the Sand community and there are certainly other, or maybe the Kung community you mentioned. And of course, many of the hunter-gatherers that we look at today are in very marginal societies, pushed to the edge. Um, they've been brutalised and, and, and restricted. And so I think we can't really imagine what life would have been like, say, in Africa or outside of Africa when we first moved into these areas with total abundance of very large mammals. We were the best hunters on the planet. We were living in abundance. We had these huge resources to share. I think it's quite likely that we weren't going around slaughtering each other like, of course, later tribal societies ended up doing. And I think that just gives us hope there is another way of living other than relying on war and the state. I'll, just, I'll make one simple end point. I could be wrong. You seem to be concluding that the solution to humanity's problems is for US hegemony to somehow be restored. But my memory of US hegemony, even at its peak in Vietnam, uh, in, in Cambodia, um, 
In Indonesia, where some half a million were killed under, under U.S. Uh, influence uh, in the 1960s, and there's Iraq, and there's Korea. I mean, we, horror upon horror of slaughter and wars. How does having U.S. hegemony back avoid those problems? Yeah, okay, well, I, I, a, lot of, a lot of points um, again here, so I'll try to respond um, uh, to at least, at least some of the points that you raise. And, I mean, one of the, the, the one that you raised about the, the value of looking at contemporary hunter-gatherer societies to understand what prehistory was like, I mean, this, of course, is one of the central arguments in prehistoric archaeology, and there's a number of reasons why um, contemporary hunter-gatherer societies might be different from uh, prehistoric ones, uh, and one of them, particularly the one you mentioned, that the contemporary ones are you know, pretty much without exception in ecologically very marginal zones that farmers don't want to have. Potentially, um, this, th- this changes everything. Uh, and so this, of course, this is where the archaeological evidence comes in. And uh, the problem, I mean, like I was saying with the first question, the problem is that the archaeological and ethnographic forms of evidence are so different from one another that it's difficult to bring them into direct collision. And this has been one of the reasons that there's still a lot of argument about the levels of, of um, violence in societies of Stone Age technology. Another reason, though, has been um, a tendency to selective definition of the problem. And I mean, you might have noticed when I was giving my talk, I deliberately avoided making any firm and fast definitions of what counts as war, uh, and just sort of talked about a, you know, a spectrum of violence, ranging all the way from individual homicides all the way up to World War II, a spectrum of, of uh, violent acts. Often what people do when they nowadays try to make the case for um, Stone Age societies as being very peaceful is to say, well, they don't fight wars. The Stone Age world doesn't have wars. And they say, well, how, how am I defining a war? Often the strategy is to set a minimum number of deaths, which counts as making it a war, rather than some other kind of conflict. And often the number of deaths will be several hundred, several thousand Well, Stone Age societies typically have a couple of dozen people. It's impossible for their conflicts to be classified as wars. It can become a circular argument, um, saying that they don't have wars, they are less violent than we are. Um, But, yeah, I mean, this debate, of course, will will continue. I mean, nobody's had the last word yet. Uh, You you started off by pointing out they they don't have a lot of property and stuff to fight over. And this, of course, is absolutely true. But it's also true um, that one of the things that psychologists studying violence have found that, in fact, um, violence rarely seems to be about property. Um, that the things that young men fight over, because it is overwhelmingly everywhere in the world, it's young men who commit 90 to 95% of the violent crimes. This is almost an invariable figure. You find it absolutely everywhere. Same is true of chimpanzees as well. Um, it's the young males, 99 to 95% of the violence. The things they fight over... Well, they fight over absolutely everything, um, is one thing. I mean, anything you can quarrel over, you can resolve the quarrel with violence if you think that's a good idea. Um, but the things people fight, the, the, the boys fight over primarily, sex is the number one thing they fight over. The number two thing they fight over is face. Uh, somebody insults me, the only way to avenge my honour, I mean, just read some Shakespeare, only way to avenge my honour, I must kill you now. There is no other option. And these are the things that when anthropologists 
just like Napoleon Chagnon, who studied the Yanomami, who I showed a slide of. When um, they have been present for acts of violence, these are overwhelmingly the things that people fight over. And when Jared Diamond, you may know this story, he got into terrible trouble a couple of years ago. He's out in New Guinea, being driven around by this guy, known for a while in his drive in New Guinea. And the guy just starts chatting about this um, 30-year cycle of homicide and revenge killings that he himself had been involved in. And, um, and Diamond was sort of shocked by this. His driver was this genial guy who you know, openly admitted, yeah, I was involved in a couple of killings and my relatives did these other killings. And Diamond then mentioned this story in an article he wrote for The New Yorker. And his driver sued him for something like $10 million for, for defamation. Uh, in the end, end, the case um, got dismissed. Uh, but what, what Diamond found in his New Guinea forms is, again, the same kind of thing. That The fights can be over absolutely anything. Um, face and sex tend to be the big things, but then very quickly, the original cause is forgotten anyway, and these vendettas will be passed down through the generations. Um, the, the child-beating thing, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not, not an expert on uh, the ethnography of child-beating by any means, I must say, but my, my understanding was there's actually enormous variability. And the, the Yanomami case, again, because they're, they're one of the outliers, they are one of the most violent societies we know about, child-beating is absolutely endemic among the Yanomami. Um, the, as far as I understand it, uh, the, there's just enormous variation there. But I may be wrong, so um, you, you, may be, you may well be right about that. Uh, last thing, just very quickly, the U.S. hegemony issue. Yes, I'm not claiming for a moment that the United States drove the rate of violent death down to zero. Um, or that the United States was governed by saints who consciously tried all the time to drive the rate of violent death all the way down to zero. Uh, there have been plenty of times where the US could have done things to prevent civil wars or at least keep them more under control and chose not to because it seemed wiser, rightly or wrongly, to the leaders not to make these interventions. And yet it still remains true that um, across the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries into the 21st century, the rate of violent death has continued to fall. And it's fallen, um, so far as the, the United Nations can tell, it has fallen particularly sharply since 1989. So, yeah, it's not a perfect system by any means, but uh, I don't think we can have a perfect system. Uh, Professor Morris, uh, David Wood from London Futurists. Can I ask you to contrast your views with those of Steven Pinker, who you've also mentioned, because it seems to me that uh, Stephen Pinker has a range of explanations as to why violence has decreased, whereas you are focusing mainly on just the one, which is the, the violence which uh, yeah. allows a state to be formed, whereas Stephen Pinker talks a lot about the roles of philosophy and new ethics. Yes. And given that war and violence is going to be increasingly problematic for the reasons you said, wouldn't it be more important, therefore, to identify these other trends and elevate them in the troubled times ahead? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, um, I'm a great fan of Stephen Pinker's book. I think uh, this is one of the best studies, the best attempts to document this decline in the rate of violence um, that has ever been written. I think very, very fine book. Um, I think... One of the things I found interesting, though, Pinker has changed his position significantly over the last 10 years. Um, If you read his book, The Blank Slate, that he published in 2002, in that he has this great line. He comes out and says, Hobbes was right, Rousseau was wrong. That's all there is to it. End of the paragraph. It goes on to a different subject. That's all that needs to be said. And, of course, that that is basically what I'm saying, too. in his more recent book, as you say, I mean, he has, I think it's something like 20 different 
factors that he lists as things that have contributed to uh, the decline of violence. And I would say that the big difference between my book and his book is that I think... um, I think he's lost sight of the causation uh, by uh, moving more toward a historical analysis. I think he allowed himself to lose sight of the causation. And and I think the the reason I feel um, that I see it more clearly than he does is not just because I always feel that way about things, but I think he went about his project in the way that social scientists very often do. He studied the relatively recent past in a lot of detail, and he looked a little bit at the archaeology of the Stone Age and some of the uh, relative comparative anthropology and kind of fast forward it through almost the whole of history. Whereas I'm trying to go about it in a different way and look at the history as a continuous narrative. And the big difference that this makes is actually coming back to the, the question that the gentleman over at the side there raised um, earlier about this medieval spike in violence. So what we're dealing with is not a continuous steady decline in rates of violence since the Stone Age. We get this decline in violence um, down as far as the formation of the great ancient empires. Then a great swing back up after the fall of these empires then a new decline in violence um, from about 1400-1500 onward. And the great thing about this, I feel, if I'm right to identify these three phases, is now we've got multiple cases to compare and contrast with each other. And of course, you know, famously, it's very difficult to demonstrate causation when you've only got one case to study. And I think when we study the multiple cases, what we see is there is one factor running through all three of them. That in the ancient period of pacification, that coincides with the rise of bigger and bigger governments driven by the wars. In the medieval period of depacification, if that's a word, that coincides with the, the breakdown of these big societies. Then the modern pacification, again, the wars drive up the, uh, the, the size and complexity of these societies. And I'm not saying that Pinker is wrong to identify all these other factors. In fact, he's, he's absolutely right. But I would say that all of the others are secondary factors consequent on the role of war in, in driving the formation of the Leviathans. And, and some of the things that he identifies, I mean, we talked about democracy with, with one of the earlier questions. I mean, another one that he focuses on is feminization. He's got this you know, fascinating line. He says, um, you know, 90 to 95% of the violence is done by young males. Um, through almost all of recorded history, these have been very male-dominated societies. Male values tend to dominate um, insofar as there's a consensus about values. Um, He says, well... um women commit a much smaller part of the violence. And in modern times, uh, there's been what he refers to as kind of feminization of values in societies. And he suggests that increasingly what's happened is that what would have been seen like a really smart and honorable thing to do in Shakespeare's day, a man of honor, is one who defends his honor with violence. By the 19th century, an honorable chap is somebody who doesn't go around knifing people in his club if they insult him. It's a complete change in what it means to be honorable. And this, he suggests, is driven by macho behaviour going from looking honourable and good to looking just kind of ridiculous. You just look stupid if you behave in this way nowadays uh, because Pinker suggests a feminization of the values. And I think he's absolutely right about this. And I think that, for me, though, the really interesting thing is that if you look at, say, the ancient Roman Empire, you see a very pale shadow of this same sort of thing. And the, the conclusion I would draw from this is that 
Feminization of values is important in driving down rates of violence, but it can only become an important force when violence has already sunk below a certain level. Only at that point does it start, well, basically to become safe to feminize um, uh, popular values. And I, I would even ha- estimate, hazard a guess on this, it's only when levels of violent death fall below, somewhere below the 2% threshold, then you're moving into the society like we start getting in the 19th century, when this process can go ahead. So, yeah, I mean, a huge admirer of this book, but I, I do think he's wrong about the causation. Okay, there are two questions over there. One at the back. Uh, my name is Brian Claxton, University of London. Professor, you made the point that um, war is putting war out of business, and I can see how nuclear annihilation would support that argument, and I agree with it. But I wonder if it wouldn't be perhaps in the longer term, going back before 1945 and to the present, to argue that business is putting war out of business, and and by business I mean international commerce, and more importantly, the interdependency of international economies and and international trade. Um, And the other point I would make is that you made the point that uh, war has historically made uh, powers richer, but again, I would suggest that International commerce is what has been making um, governments and countries uh, more wealthy. Mm -hmm. But it raises a methodological point that you haven't really touched upon, and it takes me back to this gentleman next to me's point about democracy. But I think both democracy and commerce raise the question of a methodological question as to how you disaggregate the influence, how you, I think, in the terminology of uh, international relations, how do you control for the different factors and the influence of of the different factors in your analysis? Um, And I think I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Yeah, again, um, some, some really good questions here. And, and I must say, I, I like your formulation of business as putting war out of business. And uh, I think, I mean, t- to, to an extent, you know, that is, is clearly true. That, that is one of the, the, the big things that's been going on. Um, governments have hesitated to use violence uh, and use force over their concern for what it will do for business. And you know, a lot of people have been suggesting that one of the reasons that the European response to the Russian invasion of Crimea has been so, frankly, so, so lightweight has been because they are very concerned about the financial impacts of having all the Russian oligarchs leave their properties in London and go back home again. Um, Business, in a sense, you're making forceful responses seem less attractive. Uh, But, uh, I mean, going back to what I was saying about the the Adam Smith take on the world, I think Smith actually got this absolutely right. I mean, this was one of Smith's points, that the growth of commerce is likely to lead to a more peaceful world. But Smith was also very clear that that could only work if you have the, the, the state as an enforcer behind it. He has this famous passage about the Navigation Acts that England passed in the 17th century, uh, basically trying to shut the Dutch out of English overseas markets. And he said, you know, as, as a piece of financial regulation, these are among the worst uh, decisions ever made. You know, they're they're, they're shrinking the market. The worst thing you can do, because of course increasing the size of the market is the motor behind the wealth of the nation. The worst thing you can possibly do to shut the Dutch out. A terrible decision economically. However, he says, as defence is more important than opulence, the Navigation Acts remain the wisest decisions England has ever made. Because if they don't shut the Dutch out of their markets, and um, they are likely to see the Dutch emerge as a really powerful, wealthy rival that can take England down. So I think Smith understood this very clearly, that the, the 
in order for business to do what it does, you have to have a state power kind of guaranteeing um, the, the way this process works. But I mean, moving on quickly to your, your question about the causation and, and controlling for different factors. I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right to raise this, because this is one of the great difficulties, not only in writing this book, but I think with any of these big history-type things, um, you know, whether it's me or Jared Diamond or whoever it might be, they, I think they all run into this, this same methodological issue because you know, famously causation is not the same uh, correlation is not the same thing as causation but much of the time really almost the only thing you can do is demonstrate correlations between things I mean, like, like when I was talking about you know, comparing and contrasting the ancient pacification the modern one, the medieval spike back up in rates of violence you know, obviously what I was talking about was correlations between different things, between the formation of big states and the decline in violent death and maybe if someone were better at this than me they would be able to find uh, a successful and convincing way to separate out the variables um, but I found this just to be a very difficult thing to do. And I I have found um, that I have been reduced to trying to demonstrate correlation, trying to make the case for there being a logic behind these correlations. So you can say that at least you can see the connections of why it might be war driving the formation of states which leads to the decline in rates of violent death. And then falling back on uh, the last refuge of the scoundrel. The, the idea that the way this whole game works is through conjecture and refutation. I come up with an idea about the way this larger history has worked. I put it out there that if I'm wrong, you know, one of you people in this room is going to tell me this. We have your academic professions full of people arguing with each other and competing. And, um, you know, because in the ideal scenario, uh, everyone will go away saying, yes, he is completely right about everything. What a brilliant man. Uh, if that doesn't happen, the, the, the worst case scenario is because they, somebody disproves me totally. But in the middle, I think, which is where things usually tend to end up, if somebody looks at what you do and um, realizes there's a better way to do it, tweaks are made to the argument, and you know, our understanding these processes moves forward. So, yeah, I'm afraid I just don't have a very good response to that question, because you're right. Um, So I I will leave it there. Okay. Hi, uh, good evening. Uh, My name's Alan Sabani. I'm a former student. Uh, I'd be really interested to know what importance uh, do you feel the UN has played in its reduction of violent uh, war since its creation. And also, you mentioned that the next 40 years is going to be the most turbulent. So again, what role do you feel that the UN is going to play over the next few years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, because this is a really interesting thing to think about. And um, I, mean, I, I, do, I feel strongly that the, the proliferation of um, significant non-governmental organizations in the last 50, 60 years has been a really important development. And the United Nations has accomplished um, incredible things, which, you know, living in the U.S., I'm surrounded by people who don't think this. It seems to me the U.N. in particular has accomplished incredible things. But its performance on the security side has, you know, frankly, not been very impressive. And, of course, you know, to, to someone who's written a book like the one I've just written, well, they, this seems entirely obvious that... Um, the UN is, is simply not going to be in a position to perform a very effective security role because the only way, I believe, that you can do that is by being able to act as a global cup that scares other people off from using force. And the UN, of course, relies on the very people it's trying to scare to provide the force that will scare other people off from using force. So I don't see any very effective way to have a sort of consensus-based organisation um, preventing states turning to the use of force when they decide 
decide that's the best thing available to them. But having said that, I, I do feel uh, very strongly that um, the UN has done a lot to help advance the cause of peace around the world. But it, 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 again, it's one of these things where it's only able to do that because there is a Globocop performing this task. And, uh, I mean, if, if it turns out uh, that the... Current, the trends that we currently see continue, and we do see a weakening of the global cop, an increasingly fragmented and anarchic world order, then I would suspect that one consequence of that is that it'll become harder and harder for the United Nations to do all of the things that it does so well, which is, you know, is a rather depressing thought. Um, Michael Williams, I wonder if um, a factor that you know, might be a third factor here is economic growth and the division of, of labor. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the medieval society, then virtually every man was a fighting man. If you look at um, the wars of, say, of the 17th century, you'll see a professionalization mm-hmm. of warfare. Yes. And you see this professionalization of warfare in the richest of states. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there is a relationship here. Another factor is the growing capital intensiveness of war. Mm-hmm. War simply becomes incredibly expensive. It's very, much more expensive now, relatively, I suggest, to build an aircraft carrier than I suspect yes. it was to build a dreadnought, for example. And I suspect it was much more expensive, you know, relatively to build a dreadnought 100 years ago than it was to build a ship of the line in Nelson's Mm -hmm. time. And I think there is a continuation of this trend. You can see a point where you just have one incredibly expensive frigate or something like this. So this is another factor. And both of these are linked to economic growth. So maybe... This is another factor. Economic growth is permitting the rise of the state, for example, as well, and then there is a feedback that Mm -hmm. the state pacifies a society which permits economic growth. And it all becomes very complicated. Yeah, yeah. I guess we're coming back to the issue about the causation and the controlling for the different variables again. But yeah, I mean, I, I think what, what you're saying, I mean, to a great extent, this was Thomas Hobbes's argument, um, that in, in the state of nature, as Hobbes imagined it, you know, everybody is running around fighting and in constant fear for their lives. And he says, you know, because of that, that that's why uh, life is nasty, poor, brutish, and short. He says, uh, I forget the exact word, but it's quite a long passage describing his vision of a place where property is not secure and you can't concentrate on your work because you're always looking over your shoulder and sleeping with one eye open and so on. And you know, this is the vision that he imagined us moving away from. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right about the capital intensity of warfare and the increasing difficulty for small players. And uh, quite a few historians think this is one of the reasons why you see uh, some of the, the smaller players kind of dropping out of the great power conflict as time goes on. The Netherlands, say, it drops out really in the 18th century because it just starts to become so expensive that you know, even if um, the great powers uh, you know, fairly consistently, uh, I forget the exact numbers, have spent somewhat similar percentages of their GDP on preparing for war. And if I think if it drifts above much above 5%, Paul Kennedy suggested, they begin to fall to pieces at that point. You can't sustain that. But of course these economies get bigger and bigger, which allows them to just take it out of the reach of the smaller players. And yes, I, I, think, I think your point about the, the importance of economics in this is, is very well taken, because my perspective on this is that uh, the, the wars forming the larger states is just so important in allowing for economic growth to happen. I, you remain committed to, to the basic thesis, but yeah, I think that's a very good way to put it. 
I'm afraid we've only got uh, time for two more questions, one of which I will be one of mine, so if we could uh, take the person at the back. Uh, so I'm Peter Sanders, another former student. Um, it seems that within your research and what you've said that there's an assumption that dying a violent death is a bad thing. Um, but going back to the Hobbesian argument that in order to get these larger states, people are giving up freedoms in order to create that safety. Uh, and you saw, you showed in the Middle Ages, it went up as people wanted more freedom and lost safety. You look at Europe now where certain regions want to take more autonomy back from their own countries, you know, in Northern Ireland in the sort of 70s or, mm-hmm. you know, sort of parts of Spain. So did you come to a conclusion where you think the, the best level of violent deaths is or something else that you think is more important? Yeah, uh, yeah. If I could, could I just ask my question and oh, then yeah, uh, bring it to, to a close, unfortunately? Uh, Herbert Spencer, I think, was the first person to suggest the father of social Darwinism. I suppose it's a little unfortunate to call him the father of social Darwinism, that uh, war had given all it had to give. Um, that was back in the 1890s. The question I would raise is that, that war, on the other hand, has an ability to reinvent itself. So, in, in essence, it evolves and it provides opportunities. So, in, if you take an evolutionary theory of war, in the end, it's quite good for itself not for anyone else. And we can see it uh, going into new areas like cyberspace, or even, interestingly, if you look at the uh, Schmidt and, and, and Cohen, the authors of the New Digital Age, where they say that the future will be determined between the virtual and the physical, how war is actually quite alive in the virtual world. And there are wonderful possibilities for it to evolve even further. So this is a little different from your, from your thesis, but to what extent do you, would you accept people like Barbara Ehrenreich who say that it's actually self-reproduced and it has an evolutionary dynamic which is quite independent of what good it does for us. Mm-hmm. Yes, wow, wow. Oh, two very different questions there. Yeah, so, so I guess you, I mean, your question was, you know, war, what is it bad for? Um, that, yeah, is, is violent death the worst thing that can happen? And, of course, there are, I, I would guess that for probably virtually everybody in the world, there are things that we think are worse than, than violent death. There are things that we would fight for and risk our lives for. And I think, in fact, I, I would feel a little suspicious around somebody who could honestly say, there is nothing in the world for which I would lay down my life. Um, but having said that, I do also think that less violent death is better than more violent death. So, uh, and I think, of course, you could take the book I've written and say there's absolutely Absolutely no normative moral dimension to this at all. This is just a, a discussion of a phenomenon that's happened, and uh, there's no claim being made here that there's actually some kind of progress going on in the, the fact that violent death has fallen so much. But that's actually not what I'm saying. I, I do think violent death is a bad thing, but at the same time, I think I'm human enough to think there are things worth dying for, which I, I guess is a rather self contradictory position, but I think um, that's the way we are. Uh, but but yeah, your questions about um, war evolving, yeah, I mean, I think you. You can very much think of war as a, as a meme that's you know, in this Dawkins sense. It has its own evolutionary path. Uh, and as you say, like, like genes or memes, when it evolves, what it does is evolves, uh, adapts itself to fit in better with its environment and to flourish more, albeit perhaps in, in wildly new ways. Uh, but of course, like um, genes and other memes, its evolution has all these consequences for all the organisms and genes and memes around it too. And so, yeah, I mean, I have to admit, again, I, I had not thought about putting it in this way. That's, a real, I think, a really good way to put it. I mean, I guess 
one way to describe the argument I'm making would be that the decline in the rate of violent death is a completely unintended consequence of the evolution of war in directions which have made war continue to flourish, Um, even if there's sort of less of it in a sense now. You could also say there's more of it, that even though the rates of violent death have gone down so much, the numbers, the 100 to 200 million people killed in the 20th century, the 1 to 2% of the 20th century population, that's vastly more people than lived in the world 100,000 years ago. So in a sense, yeah, war war has very successfully replicated itself. Mm. I'm going to have to go home and think about that. (laughs) Um, Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.